your manger dogs. Swab the decks and hoist the sails. The guns on board be needing some proper manning. Pieces of eight and a fine wench on your arm. If you work, be not too shoddy. Careful not to flounder too badly, though, or you may have to dance the hemp and jig as we see you to Davy Jones. Jeffy, my boy, on with the show. Avast, me hotties. To our listeners from across all regions of the planet, welcome once again aboard the Robin Hood, flagship to the world's one and only cooperatively inspired charity podcast network, WPRPN. Live streaming today from just off the shores of South Korea's sparkling Super Summit Peninsula. You're listening to episode 112 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. I'm your host, as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Fellow longtime Korea-based expat, proud member of the American Munster family, and dedicated Orientalist, Aaron Wadsworth returns to the Robin Hood this week for a high seas pre-recorded potpourri of insights, opinions, and reflections. Along with serving as an English instructor at one of South Korea's more prestigious universities, Pirate Aaron now also occasionally freelances on the side as an open-sourced raconteur and overseas intelligence agent of sorts. From Korean shamanism and current events to the mystical land of dreams, suppressed technologies, and the long-awaited end of world marijuana prohibition, this week we do our yeoman's best to map it all out, and then still even go that extra nautical mile. Episode 112 of Pirate Radio Podcast, folks. We have made it here to the Robin Hood with Aaron Wadsworth, return guest from just a couple of years ago. I've yet to actually go back into the archives and check what number episode that was, but uh, we had some potential scheduling problems that uh, we were looking at, and I, for a while, was not even sure if we'd be able to pull this one off, but thankfully the stars are all properly in alignment and we've got a little bit extra time here. Tuesday night, South Korea, almost 9 p.m. in the evening. This is a pre-recorded event for anyone who's wondering. We'll be streaming this out later in the week, Friday night, back in the States, of course, as always. And that will be 12 p.m. noon Saturday here in Tokyo and Seoul. So, Aaron, it's great to have you back visiting huh? the Robin Hood. Oh, great to be back. Pretty much what we have here is uh, improvised exchange and conversation, something that I'm willing to work with, of course, because mostly I think that sort of approach is a lot of fun, really. We're just having a conversation, trying to catch up to speed. It's been a while, of course, since we have last had a chance to talk. So, so many things on the go right now. And the biggest issue really... The elephant in the living room, of course, is the Trump-Kim summit that we see taking place now in, in Singapore. You've been following things very closely. 
Uh, yeah, since I got off work today, it's pretty much been what I've been focused on, just wanting to catch up on what happened, who said what, and how things are taking shape. I caught a little bit of CNN, caught some print media, caught some other stuff. Were you following things up until just recently, or is this something that's been on your radar for a while now? I'm kind of a news junkie, so so I've, I've been following it pretty closely. Over the past couple months? Yeah. Well, I've been a news junkie for uh, decades, but yeah, I've been following uh, the plan or the, the seedling of an idea of a plan since it began. Recently, the Pyeongchang Olympics took place, of course. I guess that was up in the northeast corner region of the southern part of the peninsula, right along the DMZ. The two Koreas made their way uh, into the event, I guess, holding the flag. It was a flag of unification, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't watch things. I just heard this filtered down through the news. Did you catch things? or Actually, I went to an event. I wasn't in Pyeongchang. I was in uh, one of the other locations. But yeah, it was, it was great. Actually, I was there when um, Vice President Pence was in attendance and ignoring Kim Jong-un's sister. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was there for that. Got some pretty good seats. It was nice. It was, it was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. Why not? It's cool. What sort of sporting events did you manage? Uh, it was it actually it was figure skating. We were just looking for what we could get tickets. The price range was pretty drastic. It went from working class to you know how much do you want to take out of your kid's college fund to buy a ticket? <laughs> it was, the, the prices got quite high. Um, I think the ticket that I got was around four hundred dollars, four hundred and fifty something like that per person, and that was the medium range. Wow, that's just to uh, take in a Olympic figure skating event. Yeah, and it, and it was like uh, less than three hours total. But I mean, yeah, like I said, it's a once in a lifetime thing. I figured I'm in the country, you know. It was, you know, why not? If anything, I think I probably would have wanted to witness some of the the hockey games. More. Mm, I, I have a couple friends who did that. But part of the thing for me was I had a, a university friend who was visiting from the United States and a Korean university friend. The three of us went to university together and we uh, coordinated. So we wanted to do it when the guy was in country. So we were also kind of limited by what tickets were available on what days. We really only had like a three-day window. Yeah, so I guess as you're saying, then your options were limited. So just going back briefly then to what we see playing out now in Singapore, and it kind of does tie into the Olympics from what I can gather, because this is really something that's been in the works for quite some time now. A lot of people seem to think, oh, it's just magically, instantaneously occurring as we speak, but really there's a lot of talk from what I understand that there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes that most people have no idea about. So, uh, but you were watching actually Dennis Rodman become quite emotional, I guess, when I uh, last texted you via my frozen Facebook account. <laughs> yeah. It's not working. Yeah, too his well, interview but. with Chris Cuomo got very emotional for him. That was quite something, wasn't it? So yeah, he's uh, he's not able to keep it together too well a lot of a lot of times. But I've been following Rodman for a while now, and especially this business of uh, his trip. You realize one of the last times that he saw 
the dear leader. He presented him with a copy of Trump's Art of the Deal, as well as the fact that his visit was sponsored by Podcoin, which is like a crypto kind of marijuana-themed yeah. Yeah, virtual currency. And for me, just putting two and two together there, I've been saying for the longest time now that with uh, respect to economic solutions, there's a lot that could be done on that front. A lot of people don't realize that in North Korea, marijuana is, a, is completely legal. This is what we're repeatedly told is a thoroughly despotic and tyrannical regime versus what we see happening down here in the so-called, uh, what we're led to believe at least, is freedom-loving, democratic <coughs> South are okay. It's quite the opposite, very draconian, extreme uh, punishment, really, and, and sentencing that can occur if you're ever caught with uh, any of this on your person, unfortunately. So... But yeah, have you been following the Rodman, that whole business at all? Just you're saying you're something of a news junkie. Oh, well, yeah, role, uh, role, yeah he came but, three times. Mm-hmm, he, he had sure. three visits to the North. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, on the special relationship that he uh, holds with not only Kim Jong-un, but of course, he's one of the few people in the world that is a, can call himself a friend of both Trump and Kim Jong-un. There's not too many people that can say that about themselves. Yeah, he's a very unique position. Um you know, he went from being an NBA superstar to a retired guy who just the never-ending party. And I think he probably wanted to do something more, use his uh, celebrity for something positive. I, I don't know his motivations. You know, you saw the Chris Cuomo interview. He doesn't really uh, interview terribly well. So it's kind of hard to determine where he was coming from. You know, he didn't articulate it very well, um, but I think that he you know, wanted to make a difference. And, you know, he's a person who's, whether you liked him as a player or didn't like him as a player, he was somebody who always, you know, left it out on the floor, you know, left it all out on the field. And he probably saw North Korea as something that he could make his because nobody else had done it at that point. Yeah, except for uh, Jimmy Carter going in and uh, getting out a hostage or, you know, Bill Clinton also did that. Um, with an exception like that, there was really nobody else who'd stepped, uh, you know, into that arena. And so it was something that my guess is he took, you know, as an opportunity to see if he could make a difference. Something that I was not aware of was the fact that during the last interview that he did with CNN, he claimed that he had on his return to the States after his most recent visit, received just a whole multitude of death threats, apparently, if you can believe that. He claims that he felt he had to go into hiding for about a month just to maintain more of a a low profile. He really, I guess, felt his safety. uh, He felt quite threatened, really, just for the fact that the action that he had taken and his, uh, his role in things and you know, so that was quite noteworthy and something that I had not heard of before. Something that uh, I only came across quite recently, and I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but a little seagull just not so long ago told me that his father, this is Rodman's father, of course, had uh, for some time apparently worked for the CIA. No, I had no idea about that. Yeah, well, neither had I. That was really came at me just from right out of the blue. So it kind of makes sense, though, just with respect to his uh, shuttle diplomacy. And Pompeo, I guess, had uh, 
played something of a role just in the lead up to things as well. Well, yeah, he actually made a trip to Pyongyang before he was confirmed by the Senate. As Secretary of State. Prior to being confirmed as Secretary of State, he'd already gone. Well, yeah, because I understood that at that time he was the head of the CIA, correct? Uh, I think he was in a transition phase. (laughs) It's very possible, but I doubt he went in that capacity. Here's the thing, too, and I know you're not the biggest Trump fan particularly, and that's probably putting it mildly, but the fact of the matter is, isn't it something myself with Obama, Bush, Trudeau, it doesn't matter. I look at it as a citizen's report card that we're able to issue for all of these people, their actions, and not just their words, of course, those, those are meaningless, but the really, the way that they back up what they talk about, and if there's any substance to what they're laying out there for the public, I suppose, and if they put their money where their mouth is, do what they say, say what they do, that kind of deal, and whether we feel it's a good thing or not. But it seems like, I'm not sure if you're of this view or not, but so many people, it seems, there's nothing that Trump can do which they're able to give the man credit for in a positive way, even if it's just a few things. You know, they might not like a lot of what he does, but they're even, you know, the occasional uh, policy decision or, or executive action that is taken, much in the way that even Obama, personally, I was not a huge fan, but there were the rare occasions where I thought he did the right thing. And for that, I just felt that, you know, it was important to give him credit. You know, you give credit where credit is due. Is there anything that Trump has done? Maybe this is one of them where you would applaud his actions or support his position, I suppose, and what ultimately he's attempting to achieve. Well, I think right now, if you listen to the pundits uh, talking on whatever news outlet you go to, the the biggest point of contention uh, among the pundits is it's not really sure or it's not crystal clear what he is trying to accomplish. I mean, they're you know meeting, having the handshake, uh, signing a largely symbolic paperwork to do something in the future. Uh, there's allusions to denuclearization at some nebulous point in the future. And Donald Trump said that uh, the U.S. will no longer be participating in joint military exercises, which is a fairly large concession without really anything concrete in return. It's not clear what the goal is, what the real carrot is here, the brass ring. So I'm, I'm pretty cautious about it. Having been a student of politics for a long time and history, I tend to look at things like this from a fairly skeptical standpoint, regardless of who is in office. But right now, the only thing that we know for sure is that it was a great photo op and that Chairman Kim and President Trump met. Beyond that, a lot of it is speculation and hope. And hope is great. Hope is good, um, but... You know, we saw what happened in 95, what happened in 2005, or 94, 2005, uh, 2012. So, especially where the DPRK is concerned, I I tend to be a bit uh, reserved. And I I really don't think that the groundwork for what happened today and possibly some things that may happen tomorrow, um, that there wasn't a lot of forethought. There just wasn't. 
there isn't a fully staffed diplomatic outpost in South Korea. Therefore, there aren't State Department professionals to lean on. There isn't an infrastructure to work with. And so to say it's unconventional is an extremely kind way of saying unprepared and irresponsible. It's a photo op. And until something concrete happens, I'm just trying to look at it for what we know. And what we know is that it was a really nice photo op and it was a nice gesture. And it made a lot of people in South Korea happy that something was being talked about. Um, I think in that regard, that's positive. But I think it's just as probable that Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un, President Xi of China, set this up and Donald Trump had little or nothing to do with it at all. So, yeah, pretty impromptu in some ways and and improvisational. Uh, That's your take, at least on the surface of things. Although I I would say my sense is there was at least some contingency planning that, you know, goes back at least a a couple of months and in a serious way as far as what could potentially be discussed and that there was a roadmap for achieving some sort of progress in coming together and you know, bringing about some more positive change. In particular, I guess one of the main issues would be the denuclearization of the DPRKs, the current program that they seem to be in pursuit of. And as you pointed out, of course, too, with the war games that uh, U.S. troops are quite routinely participating in, that's another big issue. As I was talking to you about just in brief with the pre-interview that we put together, just the Mm. few minutes of exchange that we had in the lead-up to things here. I happen to live right in the crosshairs of the the overflight area. So we got got jets and planes that uh, had been for the longest time flying over here, uh, buzzing the apartments in some cases. You got military helicopters. Uh, I just recently, in fact, talked to a local politician about this whole matter. Uh, just a couple of days ago, although I did also emphasize the point that it, I had seemed to notice that just in the last six weeks or so in particular, things seem to, for some reason, have quieted down. And that's the kind of the course that we seem to be on right now, where they're just not going to continue to participate in these exercises. And just think of the fuel costs that are going to be saved. This is something that Trump pointed out as well that I was fully aware of that uh, didn't need him to you know, tell me. Uh, Probably, you know, a few other people are aware of this too, but a lot of cost-cutting measures there to the point now where he's even talking about in very kind of Ron Paul type fashion, bringing the troops home. So we'll see about that, how things unfold here over time. And uh, I guess we're just basically going to have to play it all by ear. But once again, I'm most excited about this business of pot tourism finding its place in, in the North that they promote that whole sector of the economy, which it's a golden opportunity, frankly. And the fact of the matter with Rodman's trip being sponsored by Potcoin, to me, that that was a major signal of uh, what he had intended, uh, along with presenting, uh, once again, the Kim Jong-un copy of Trump's Art of the Deal. And let's not forget, just the other day, too, it's interesting to note, they say in politics, timing is everything. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But did you pick up on how... uh, POTUS 45 came out on the record, this might have even been during the recent uh, G7 summit up in Canada, that he was in favor of handing over responsibility essentially for uh, any pot-related issues to the states and 
that the federal government would be washing its hands as kind of taking a hands-off approach to any weed-related issues from... Well, yeah, it was uh, something, I think it was that he said that he wouldn't uh, get in the way if a national action had been introduced in Congress, for example, to either decriminalize or um, whatever. But yeah, he said uh, he's not inclined to get in the way. Whether it's what he believes or whether it's a dig at his attorney general that he wants to quit, um, I don't know. But I I really hope that it works out because uh, the criminalization of cannabis outside of keeping hundreds of thousands of people in prison unnecessarily for nonviolent crimes that I don't believe are crimes at all, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's wasting national resources is destroying lives, it's wasting resources, and it's preventing business. Well, you know, if one thinks that capitalism can save the day, uh, it's taking away a key piece of what could be the future with, um, you know, hemp-based products. And hemp isn't even cannabis, it's just a cousin, but America still keeps it criminalized. You know, you can possess hemp clothing, but you can't grow the hemp to make the hemp clothing in the United States, so America imports it. So, yeah, that's that's a whole sector of business that could be developed domestically if that can move forward. And, yeah, I, I would also like to see recreational cannabis uh, available for people from sea to shining sea in the United States. I think that it would be, you know, socially uh, a very positive thing for the country.
service to the market rules. Golden arches and our heathen schools. Invisible hands shall rise from the dead once more. Once more. And for victory, peace for sale. Jesus, I can hardly wait. Crops to harvest, work to be done. Make America Great Again. Uh, my image and impression of America has been the strong emphasis on this idea of rugged individualism, but also freedom, you know, and that it's, it's your body, you know, true libertarian fashion, that as long as you're not causing harm directly to another person, it's no business of anybody else what you do. Whether when it comes to uh, issues regarding what you eat or drink, smoke or snort or inject or lick or you know you name it, so that's uh, you know for me philosophically really crossing the line. And one of the great things about America is this strong emphasis and tradition of uh, respect for freedom, including the the right to you know freedom of expression without fear of uh, recrimination or any uh things like like hate crimes for example for me philosophically really crosses the line that's a whole new category of laws which is you know very uh orwellian of course in a in a big way and uh completely i hate to use the term but frankly un-american but anyways uh let's just leave that there for now my voice in my personal opinion i'm not sure if you stand in accordance with that maybe we can come back to that a little bit later but i thought right now what we could do is kind of backtrack a little bit and maybe start a little more from the beginning let's get into a little bit about who aaron wadsworth is how it is that you managed to find yourself in korea uh i know we connected with the korean shamanism show that we did now it's got to be almost two years ago i suppose uh, almost two years it was uh, it was the summer yeah almost two years ago You've got a big meeting coming up here too. That was one of the scheduling issues. You, you're yourself a uh, you sit on the board of directorates, I guess, the Korean National uh, Shamanist Association or something along those lines. Oh no, um, the the Museum of Shamanism it's in Unpyeonggu, and I I do some work with them. I've been on the board of that museum um, since it began as an entity. It started in Jongneung. As uh, it was in a house, actually, and um, 
The director of the museum, uh, Yang Jong-sung, it's his personal collection. He's been collecting shaman materials, primarily Korean, but also some from Siberia and some from Nepal and some other places. And um, now it's his personal collection. Over time, it became, because it's the only one in the country, it's the only museum focused on that specifically. And because he had spent time as a senior curator at the National Folk Museum for almost 20 years, you know, his museum got more and more attention, both domestically in South Korea and from scholars in other countries who wanted to learn more about it. Um, and so he got an offer in Unpyanggu to put his museum in what was a restored shaman compound, Gumsungdang. That's a whole separate story. But so, yeah, in the short answer is he moved the museum there. And for about two years, it's been at that location. And so, yeah, this coming Saturday, there's going to be a ritual. It's going to be all day from about 9 a.m. to about 5 p.m. And it should be a lot of fun for a lot of people. It's a great opportunity to take in something and just experience it without as much language barrier or without much commentary. You can just go and have the experience as you want to have it, which is great. And that's part of why I'm there is, you know, if people have questions, I can be there to help in English because there's plenty of people there to help in Korean, but not a lot to help in any foreign language. So that's kind of my job. I'm looking actually through the archives what we have here, and it turns out that it was episode 27 mm. going back to July of 2016. During the after show, it was amazing. We had Pong Eun Mi join us, if you can believe that. Yeah, yeah. She and I actually became Facebook friends after that. You introduced us. Well, that's great. Have you had a chance to actually meet her in person? No, we haven't met in person yet, but we have messaged a few times back and forth. Oh, she's just really quite something. You know, it was really special what happened uh, in the wake of all that. I was, ended up getting invited. Uh, I wish I could give you the exact location. It was just outside of Seoul. I had to catch a, a subway from the main train station from Yongsan. It was up into the like northeast quadrant, essentially, of the peninsula, more or less. Uh, huh. I feel embarrassed. I can't be more specific. We went, went off. She picked me up at the uh, one of the subway stops, and we made our way up into the mountains. It's really beautiful. We uh, drove up into the, the temple site, and just at that very moment, as we got out of her vehicle, over the the one mountain that was in front of us, I looked up, there was a beautiful full moon, and we saw a shooting star wow. that flashed across the landscape there. It really made for quite a beautiful night visual. So something that will probably long stand in my memory. I stayed the night, and uh, we got up in the morning and actually went through a rigorous, as you know how these things go, is a 10-hour initiation ceremony, approximately. There yeah. was um, a young lady who, Unmi, she, Pang Unmi, had said with her, her visiting that she had an ailment at the time, and she said, look, you know, you've got to become a shaman, or you're going to die, essentially. It was that Serious with her. Yeah, it's called her, Shin Byung, the spirit sickness. Yeah, so it really, it's, it was a special 
<laughs> it's a, a pretty rare, both from my vantage point as well as from the, the young shaman initiate. So she embarked on this spiritual journey. It was really quite rigorous and trying. And at the end of the day, it was quite something, a very transformative experience, really, what I witnessed. Um, uh, you know how, well, maybe you can talk a little bit about how the, the shaman initiation ceremony works, what your, what your knowledge of things are and uh, how things play out over the course of the day. I've been to many rituals. Um, about a month and a half ago, I was at a three-day ritual. That was intense. I was there for actually a little more than three days with somebody who's, who's suffering from Shenbyang, the shaman sickness or the spirit sickness. The way that usually works these days it usually is something that starts around the time of puberty or around the time where somebody begins to you know, go through the changes of becoming an adult. And as they get older, there are many different you know, symptoms, things that have happened. Usually uh, there can be problems at school, health problems, oftentimes uh, difficulty with school, difficulty with holding jobs. Difficulty with marriages, and again, difficulty with health. Oftentimes, it's accompanied um, by patterns of family health problems, where it's not just one person, it's many people, or everybody is getting sick. Usually, it culminates into some kind of an event, the most dramatic of which is something uh, that could be like a dream, where the person who's having the sickness sees where... A shaman has buried their you know, shaman tools. In the shaman tradition of the old days, uh, shamans either burned or buried their tools and costumes when they retired. It, it was not common to pass much on to students or to sell them as art. That's changed recently, but in the past, they were burned or buried. And so there were examples of people who had the shaman sickness who had a dream, and then they would go up into the mountains by themselves and unearth these shaman relics. And when that would happen, they would be identified as, ah, you have to become a shaman. And there were there are other uh, ways that are less dramatic. These days, uh, the shaman sickness also will often include a visit to some kind of psychiatric a healthcare provider or facility to check out that they're not just mentally ill. You know, I think that that's a fairly recent one, but that's fairly common now uh, to make sure that, you know, that it's not schizophrenia, that they're actually having a, a spiritual experience rather than a mental illness experience. And then once somebody has identified as somebody with Shinbyung or the spirit sickness, then uh, they have to find somebody who's willing to be their spirit mother you know, a shaman who's willing to be their master teacher, and they have to be very committed to doing this. And, you know, I think that as Westerners, we have a bit of romanization, romanticization, however you say that, <laughs> romanticizing of the experience of, you know, of being a shaman, you know, becoming a shaman. Uh, but actually, in Korean culture, there's a sadness to it. There's a an attitude not like, I'm going to be a shaman is, I have no choice, I must be a shaman. And it's usually accompanied by sadness, um, 
know, I know of one case where uh, this woman was having Shin Byung and it was identified and she went through the mental health care system and they said, no, it's Shin Byung and she needs to be a shaman. And, you know, the mother's response was to cry. It was like the mother didn't cry that her daughter was visiting a, a mental health center for a few days, but she cried that her daughter had to be a shaman, which I think reflects a lot about the culture uh, and the cultural view of it. Anyway, that's generally how how it goes at the beginning. The actual stages of the gut to the ritual to uh, become, uh, I've never seen that ritual. I've read about it. I've talked to uh, my teachers about it, but I've never actually seen it. So you might be able to talk about it better than I could. I've got actually the files archived online, so we can maybe share them with viewers and listeners of the show. I say viewers because every week we put a slideshow together for people Hmm. to keep them hopefully semi up to speed, maybe a little entertained or informed, uh, just, you know, what's going on, some context to things, uh, you know, who the guest is and what we're discussing. Uh, once again, just each and every week. So I'll definitely add the link for people so they can access those files, both the pictures as well as the, uh, the video content that's been uploaded. It was really quite something. Uh, now to describe it, it was rigorous and, uh, quite a trying ordeal. Just the whole process. I was physically drained. I can just imagine how the poor initiate felt, you know, simply, uh, it presumably took a lot out of her. But at the end of the day, it was quite something. Once again, I think one of the words I've used here was transformative. Mm. And uh, you could really see that because she sat down after she'd passed all the tests. And this is one of the things. You are talking earlier about the shaman of ancient days hiding their tools, burying their tools, that sort of uh approach to things for you know i'm yeah, sure retirement or death yeah okay. retirement or death they would bury them or burn them well this is an interesting uh maybe angle perhaps because during the initiation ceremony right almost the climax to things really she had to uncover certain things that had been hidden throughout the shrine room at various locations and including just you know various uh, implements and tools and so forth that they use throughout the course of their practice. I think there was like some rattles and just different implements and whatnot she uncovered. It was really quite something. She didn't succeed every time, so there were hits and misses, but it didn't take too long, and she found what she was looking for. It wasn't like she was going around digging, just rifling through everything. She would uh, she would dance, and uh, more like, like a hopping sort of, uh, you know, it was very much a trance-like, state that she was entering into i guess shaking i'm not sure if what kind of uh like pine tree it's a branch taken off of the spirit tree usually at a shaman compound there's a spirit tree or a a tree that represents spirit and for rituals like that they'll cut a branch from it and that branch will be used in the ritual yeah, and then she, she, would, she would spin around a little bit, almost like a whirling dervish, although perhaps not as uh, with not as much intensity, I don't think. But still, there was a spinning aspect of things, and then she would stop and just hone right in on the location. So it was like she was attempting to almost, I guess, through intuitive means, somehow make that connection with the, the hidden tool uh, or implement 
wherever it was located throughout the shrine room. So it was really quite something. And then I paid my $50, <laughs> Korean tradition once again, to sit down with the new initiate and have her read my fortune. What she said was three simple things. Stick with your wife, stick with your job, and keep doing this broadcasting thing that you uh, have recently embarked upon. So how she knew about the broadcasting, I have no idea, because I didn't tell her. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is one of those things that came out of the blue, supposedly. But uh, And so far, I've done that pretty much. You know, I've uh, the wife and I have, have weathered our... Every relationship takes a little bit of work, I suppose. Nothing. Oh, yeah, it has its ebbs and flows, its good weeks, its bad weeks. Um, yeah. you got to work at it. You know, it's got it's got to be kind of a give and take, obviously. One of my teachers years ago told me they say, a mar- you know, a lot of people say a marriage is 50-50, and it's not. It's 80-20 on both sides. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's a good <laughs> way of looking at it, yeah. So sticking with that, working on that, uh, nurturing the relationship as best I can. Uh, in fact, just brought home three little roses, which really wasn't much. It's not a big deal money-wise. Uh, I'm never... I've never bought any diamond rings or anything like that. That's really not my trip at all. I'm kind of philosophically opposed to the whole business of diamonds. You know, I think they call them blood diamonds in some circles and not my thing at all. But roses, yes, it's just a symbolic gesture. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure how well it was appreciated exactly, but uh, just little things too. So around the house, doing the dishes, changing the cat litter box, taking care of the laundry, taking, you know, house chores and all that kind of deal, as well as doing my best to be a good, uh, teacher in the line of work that I find myself, um, huh. uh, busy with at the moment here. Professional elf, actually, is the way I like to put it. <laughs> English language facilitator. You talk about being a professional elf, it really sends some people for a loop. Do you remember the late night broadcaster Art Bell? Yeah. So I called into his show once. It was really kind of a weird sort of clusterfuck is one way of putting it. I was actually ready. I was trying to hang up and get off of Skype, and he connected right through to me, man. And it was weird because I was not experienced at all in Skype. I was a real newbie, and it was like a surreal moment, man. I was like, into the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the meeting of two minds and the guru and the student. And for me, uh, that's really kind of what it was just in the same similar way as what we're doing now every time we have a guest on the show it is you know i i'm able to enjoy the meeting you know of their mind it's like a mind meld that we uh in- engage in so but uh yeah no i teased him and pulled his leg a little bit with the whole professional elf thing here because he was curious what are you doing in korea and that sort of thing and chatted with him just for a couple brief uh minutes uh but ended up he uh he ended up chuckling actually in the end cuz he realized that I was I was more or less pulling his wooden leg as we like to put it here on the Robin Hood you know the whole pirate angle of course it's got to be the wooden leg not just any <laughs> ordinary one you know just for a brief moment here going back to this business of shamanism and and dreams and so forth dreams are it seems a very powerful thing and and psychic phenomenon and something that we have within our realm of consciousness that really in a lot of ways I think remains a mystery for most people Uh, Socrates as I was just that I just actually had drawn 
to my attention I'd forgotten about basically and uh, recalled the other day someone I forget who exactly mentioned that it's a I think in the last book of the Republic, as a matter of fact, that he goes on talking in some detail about dreams. So it's something that maybe I should try to revisit myself here at some point and get clearer on. But I actually had a dream once. Well, to tell you the truth, I've probably had a few dreams that have been quite interesting. But this one in particular where I had a, I dreamt that my songbook, because it had been missing for a while, was under my... Uh, at that time roommate's bed I woke up in the next morning went and checked I didn't even go into their bedroom I just kind of crouched down and looked under the bed I could see it from outside their room and there it was under the bed see if you can believe that so um, <laughs> I had that exact same dream I think 1993 it was with my roommate's uh, bag of harmonicas that had disappeared for two weeks and uh, yeah, it was. I, I dreamed it was under a stack of stuff on a chair, and there it was. <laughs> Dreams are pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, it's you betcha. So, you know, and lately I've been trying to study as much as I can this whole business of mentalism, as it's known uh, in the world of stage magic. It's a popular branch of magic. I'm not sure if you know too much about this, but aside from card tricks or pulling coins out of kids ears or rabbits out of hats it has to do more with just i guess sensitivity sensitives is what some of these people were called back in the day and uh, there's a lot of debate whether it's a genuine sort of uh, supernatural powers that these people possess or they're just simply very intuitive and uh tuned into certain vibrations i suppose that sort well, of thing mentalism and shamanism would be very different but um no somebody who like the tv series the mentalist um somebody who has worked in that skill set um people who who become adept at that they can um well there are lessons to be learned you know there are constants in, in terms of physiology of the human being uh the functions of the brain, how they function. Um, there are ways to bypass certain parts of human consciousness. Um, there are ways to go directly into long-term memory, for example. There's a lot of things like that that are science. There's nothing mystical, spiritual, or anything like that about them. They're, they're just, you know, that's how the human organism works. And that's largely what a, a mentalist uh, works with. And you can have people who do stage magic with that, uh, con men or women, um, confidence men, confidence women, they have learned to work with that, usually in a more organic way. Gypsies, those things are, are a constant. The purview of uh, shamans, on the other hand, are that's dealing more with uh, a spiritual entity being a part of it besides just the human. In you know Korean shamanism, uh, usually the shaman has a spirit god. Uh, it can be uh, like a family, a deceased family member that whispers in their ear. Uh, it can be uh, some other uh, spirit that they've achieved some kind of relationship with or harmony with. But that's very different than working with the body. Basically, a mentalist is working with the har the, uh, the harmonics of the mind. The uh, the pacing, the chemistry, the functions of different things. Um, 
I mean, it's pretty cool stuff either way, but I would imagine that if a shaman had the skills of a mentalist, uh, it would be a big positive for them because most people are ignorant of both of them, and so it makes for great showmanship. And there is an element of showmanship to shamanism, for sure, uh, whether it's tradition or whether it's to make it more accessible to the customer or client or village or whatever. You know, those kinds of things can be beneficial. I think some of those are a part of the shaman's training, some of those things, but it's in a much more organic way. It's not presented in terms of science. Uh, they, they use different language, so different symbols. So that means they, you know, there's a different thought about it, but it could be some of the same things. Um, they just describe it differently. But the root of being a mentalist and the root of being a shaman are two very different things. You're familiar with the terms cold and hot reading? Uh, be clear what you mean. Well, cold reading is the way that I guess the mentalism, uh, that's one of the strategies or techniques really that they're able to gain insight into people, their personalities, characters, as well as even personal history and the like, too. They can go about it in a very sneaky, quite deceptive way. For example, having people provide personal information, uh, which they don't realize ultimately is going to be used to conduct certain what they believe are... Uh, uh, amazing prophecies and and insights that the medium or mentalist offers when really they've just like prior to like say a show occurs that they actually provide in personal information street addresses all those sorts of good things that can later huh. be used against them there's even stories of mentalists sometimes waiting in bathrooms quietly in a the bathroom stall overhearing certain conversations and then later going out onto the stage and uh, just really playing it up as if it's all uh, just kind of spur of the moment and uh, magical when really there's a little bit of deception uh, at play. But I realized, like you say, yeah, two separate things, frankly, uh, you would, you would, you would think, although maybe certain critics, um, cynics even people that have looked at shamanism have talked about saying that there could be a things operating on on parallel lines as far as this whole business is concerned but uh, going back to the term that was referenced earlier are you familiar with the expression sensitive yes yeah so i'm not sure if you fully addressed that or not but it was apparently used or uh, during the spiritualist movement of the late 19th century, I guess, is when that came about. Yeah, there was a personal growth movement, you know, in the end of the Victorian area. And then there was another one a couple decades later during the time where you had Dadaism going into surrealism. And, you know, during that period into the Roaring Twenties, you know, which gave way to Art Deco, which gave way to the world's economy crumbling. Um, during that period, there was also another renaissance of uh, you know, spiritual interest. A lot of Westerners became interested in Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and yoga, things like that. Even uh, some basics of Japanese martial arts became a novelty for the aristocracy. So yeah, end of the Victorian era, and again in the post World War One through the twenties, there was another personal growth movement. 
Yeah, isn't that something? So quite a history, different, uh, as you say, movements and uh, philosophical uh, traditions and uh, so forth over the course of the past. Well, well and and they so. all they all all these personal growth movements also uh, coincide with developments in art and developments in other aspects of culture. You know, or science. You know, at the end of the Victorian era was when electricity was really becoming a part of modern life. It was no longer something of science fiction or something that was theoretical or conceptual, but it was something that was being applied to daily life. And it was something that was very quickly becoming a part of everyday life for the masses. Um, and then in the 1920s, uh, during that time after World War One, the most violent war in, at that time in the history of humanity, uh, and the trench warfare was certainly with with the chemical weapons that had happened, and the you know it was some of the most horrific sides of the human experience had ever been shared, and so there was a reaction to that in the art, you know, and again you had that in the 1960s during the you know the Vietnam War. The beatniks of the 50s gave way to the hippies of the early to mid 60s, um, and you had this growth of art. You know, some I, I would say that pop art was quite cynical, but there was also an element of uh, satire to it—the commoditization of humanity. But it was just music and film. It was all these things that go along with these periods of personal growth. And from what I've read, even in the times of the ancient Greeks, that there were also similar things. They coincided with developments, you know, at that time, they didn't have the technology, it was more uh, advancements in the tools of warfare. From a spiritual standpoint, the ancient Greeks had an interesting term known as eudaimonia, referring to the good demon within. It was a synonym for happiness. Um, and that, of course, was, I believe, people such as Alexander the Great, Socrates, of course, uh, for hundreds of years would have been very uh, widely recognized and understood that, yeah, when you were happy, that your demon within was at ease and content, more or less. So you're at peace and uh, at one with yourself. So, uh, which kind of, I know we're kind of, jumping all over the place here but maybe we can connect a few of the dots and and uh tie up a few of the loose ends you had earlier addressed this whole business of how certain uh shinbyong individuals people that are suffering from the sickness that they're sometimes taken to see a psychiatrist first of all and then in korea because this of the way that the culture is that they are understood not to be so much mentally disturbed or insane in the way that uh, uh, many other people would be, uh, unfortunately, but that they're acknowledged as potential shaman um, candidates. Uh, Now, it's interesting, though, to look at the West, where this is completely overlooked and ignored, that there are never people who such a destiny or course is uh, laid out for that they this is it's it, it might have existed at one point but now is swept 
under the carpet and uh, relegated to the dustbins of history. So I think which is is quite uh, concurrent, maybe, or uh, there was, you know, during the Middle Ages, as well as the few centuries that followed, the witch burnings, the, the Inquisition, of course, and persecution of herbalists and healers and midwives and so forth, that... Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure. Are you clear on the shamanist history in the West? Uh, where did it go? And uh, what what is the tie in there with uh, witchcraft? I know I talked to Pong and me, and she was quite adamant that the two traditions were very distinct. That there's nothing witchy about shamanism. Uh, yeah, I would I would lean more towards uh, her take on it. Um, you know, they say witchcraft. It's very important to pay attention to the language. Many times people talk about the practice of yoga, and it is a practice. You don't perfect it. You just get better at it. Um, which craft is, you know, a craft. It is a science. It is a set of uh, rituals, a set of formulas, things that you do that produce result X. But it's not about a spirit possession in a shamanic way. Now, you might have a coven that might be able to channel some form of spiritual entity and garner some kind of result, possibly, but that's different from shamanism. Uh, shamanism is, uh, in that respect, more individualistic. Yeah, very internal, uh, subjective. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent it's exactly an alchemical experience you know i can't really speak definitively on these matters but there's a great deal that can be said for it of course there's not too much that you really do see from an external standpoint other than perhaps the wind is one of the things that i've noticed the synchronicity with certain activities on a spiritual mm -hmm. level that you suddenly for example do see the wind rising or subsiding Perhaps the birds or something in your natural environment starts to become quite um, excited. Or well, you find yourself in harmony with your environment. Mm. Um, you know, if you you know, the New Age movement really began with Castaneda's Carlos Castaneda's first book, the you know, a Yaqui way of knowledge, um, and that's something that uh, Castaneda touched on in his writings was um, his. Uh, teacher in the book, Don Juan would talk with Carlos and there would be something that happens in the background, you know, a succession of cars um, going eh, eh, or something like that. And, and Don Juan would laugh and say, you see, Carlitos, the world agrees with me. <laughs> I've <laughs> noticed like in that. restaurants at times, uh, and um, the word exactly is escaping me at the present moment, but for example, dishes crashing in the restaurant kitchen, just at a particular moment where you find yourself engaged in some conversation, uh, with, with somebody, you know, Carl Jung and meeting Freud at, uh, there's one point where I think Freud was visiting Carl, uh, Gustav Jung at his domestic dwellings. And, uh, which I believe was in Switzerland. I might not have my facts exactly straight here, but, what occurred was that Jung had predicted some 
incident, which could have totally been set up as well, too. I've thought about this for a while, thinking, well, maybe it was just he was trying to pull the wool over Freud's eyes. But because the, uh, they became so heated in their conversation, the back and forth between the two of them it became so charged and electrified that he said, you just watch, something's going to happen here. And with that, there was a book or two that, that uh, flew off the shelves from hmm. the room they were situated, supposedly. So you can find this. It's a pretty well-documented incident. I'd have to go track it down, but I think you could quite easily find it online if you did the the uh, appropriate keyword search. So language of the birds is certainly another uh, item people might want to uh, look into and research. Although going back to Castaneda, wasn't he himself? Well, I mean, he was a writer of fiction and kind of a, a charlatan of sorts, really, although well, he... Carlos Castaneda started out as a graduate student, I think, at UCLA. He was an anthropology master's student who was writing about medicinal plants of the tribes of northern Mexico. And uh, uh, he'd had difficulty finding um, informants, you know, or sources for, you know, local sources, you know, people to talk to. He was having problems with that. And a friend of his said, well, there's this old Indian I know, and maybe you might want to talk to him. And so that was in Arizona, I believe. So he traveled from California to Arizona, and um, he found that this Indian spoke amazing Spanish, which was very surprising because, generally speaking, whether it's Native American uh, from the United States or Native Americans from Mexico, one of the constants is poverty and lack of education. And so he was very surprised to find this man who was very articulate in what had to have been a second language. Um, and long and short of it, Don Juan met this guy and tricked him, and before he knew it, instead of being an informant for Carlos, Carlos had actually become his his um, student. And you know, once you get involved in that kind of relationship, it's really hard to just cut the cord because your life has now completely changed in ways you had no comprehension were possible, and nobody else in your life understands what any of it is, and so you suddenly feel like you have to stay in it just to stay sane. When the student um, is prepared, the teacher will appear. Yeah, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, and that's yeah. The thing that Carlos Castaneda had going on was, um, you know, he's a Westerner. He wasn't an Indian. Um, he was taught by one or a group of them, uh, at very least two of them. And he clearly learned some stuff. However, what he did with it as an author and as a public persona, there's a lot of people who have come out and said he um, abused his, his power, abused his authority. And he also, as far as I know, I think he smoked himself to death. I think he died of cancer, you know, a lot younger than he probably needed to go. But yeah, there's a lot of people who said he was a charlatan. Others, they're not sure. I generally just try to take what I can from the works, and I try not to judge it because I've never met the guy, and now that he's dead, I you know never will have the opportunity. But I know that especially the first three books, four books, sorry, the first four books really helped me a lot. Well, I had teachers in America before I came to Korea. I had two teachers uh, for martial arts and other things. And uh, with one of them especially, uh, the Castaneda books helped me. With different traditions, you have different language, different symbols. You know, the thing about with Eskimos having whatever it is, 50 words or 100 words for snow. 
you know, so uh, like in a, in a shamanic tradition for Eskimos, their symbols are going to reflect their environment and they're going to reflect their culture. And so they might talk about something using very different symbols than somebody from a Sonoran Desert in northern Mexico. Um, so they might be talking about the same things, but the symbols that they've chosen to describe them with are radically different. And uh, just generally, I found the symbols that Castaneda chose for describing these things were more ma- made those things more accessible to me than uh, some of the symbols that are used in Chinese Taoism, which are you know can be fairly esoteric, or um, Hinduism, which to me is phenomenally esoteric. <laughs> I could probably study Hinduism for fifteen years and still not completely understand it it's i think it's almost a system you have to be born into i really do it's very detailed but um the symbols i think that reading about these things has its limitations but one of the limitations is that it they're one of the lessons rather is that it can help you with understanding the symbology and what's behind it and Castaneda's works, if they were anything, were good at helping people to uh, see the symbols and to take them beyond just a context and actually integrate them. You know, a lot of people I know who read those books, um, you know, had it profoundly affect their dreaming life, uh, affect their awareness. I even had one friend who had to stop reading them because it was turning his completely turned his dreaming life upside down, and um, he just he, he wasn't feeling like he was getting rested. And this was going on for a few weeks. And he's like, I, he had to put the books down. He just couldn't continue with them. One of my questions. He might have been one of those sensitive types. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Good chance. Sure, why not? Uh, one of the things I was wondering here, I'm not clear on, did Castaneda intend his writings to be taken as fictional or non-fictional? Well, his first book was his master's thesis. His first book is split into two parts. Uh, you have the narrative, where he puts himself in the context of a character, and then you have a second part of the book, which is about a third of the text, which is uh, terminology and the systemization that was presented to him by Don Juan. Um, that's the only book that's set up like that. But the first book, I don't think was intended as fictional at all. And UCLA accepted it as his master's thesis in lieu of a traditional academic work. Now, I think that as his works went on, uh, Book 2, A Separate Reality, um, was a continuation of the first book. The third book, Journey to Ixalan, was apparently Carlos going, Oh my God, I totally missed the boat when I wrote those first two books. I, I got that shit totally wrong and wrote about it during the same period of time, but from a different perspective because he, like people do, evolved and developed and saw past what his limitations used to be. And then uh, the fourth book, Tales of Power, kind of brought it, in my mind, full circle. And then after that, he wrote other books that did illuminate some things, but people could argue that they were also a cash grab. I don't look at it that way, but I can understand why somebody might think about it that way. 
there's very little of the man that's ever been archived as far as uh, one or two, I think, radio or audio interviews that I've ever managed to come across, and only the slightest amount, almost like a J.D. Salinger-type character with uh, respect to video footage, very aloof and elusive. Yeah, he did He did some work for or some press stuff with his first book, and as far as I understand, he didn't do any after that. Because there isn't very much of it out there. We might have seen the same stuff. He did uh, a fairly detailed radio interview, and there's a couple other little things out there. And there are some print interviews, but yeah, I've never seen video. This is episode... 112 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. We are talking this week with former guest and expat American living in Korea now the past going on, I would imagine, almost two decades. Aaron Wadsworth. How long have you actually been here, Aaron? bit over 17 years. I, I came here in uh, March 2001 and... Um, Except for uh, about six months in 2002, I've pretty much been here nonstop, you know, except for the occasional visit to resupply and see friends and family in the States. Where were you September 11th, 2001? That's an interesting story. Um, my roommate and I, I was living in Kyungju. It was my first you know, contract in Korea. I was teaching at an academy or a hagwon. And um, it, we had just gotten home. It was about 730 at night. And um, my roommate and I were both, you know, hippies and, um, you know, a bit on the artsy side, more interested in watching a Criterion film than, you know, watching cable. So we had cable in our house, but we'd never connected it to our television. And so I got a call from my mother in the States and it was like, she said that, do you know what's going on? I'm like, no, I just got off work. She's like, uh, an airplane uh, just hit one of the Twin Towers. And before um, the brain kicked in, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, who let that happen? <laughs> um, so anyway, I taught my mom, let me know what was going on. We hooked up the cable, got it set up. And back in those days, it was before most people, most foreign uh, workers here had cell phones. And so we had a landline phone and we had cable. And we were one of only a couple foreigners in the whole city that had that combination. And so, you know, people have asked me many times, you know, what were you doing when 9-11 happened? It was like, well, I was, I had like 15 or 20 people at my house and I was cooking mandu for four hours. <laughs> you know, as people were coming by, freaking out, wanting to call family, you know, so I was taking care of people as they were coming in, trying to find out if everybody was okay, because different people had friends or family in New York City, you know, just wanting to find out what was going on. No, it was very... Yeah, emotionally charged. I, I saw the second tower go down. It was pretty amazing, you know, having that happen. So even now, since that happened, I've always had cable living in Korea because I, if there was another event of that variety that happened, I wanted to be able to to see it live. You know, I've tried to do that sort of thing online, and you just can't depend on it because of bandwidth issues. You can't depend on being able to get it on the internet. You might get it an hour later, but you won't watch it live. So what is your take on the whole business of uh, who was actually behind the attacks? Do you subscribe to the official narrative, the official conspiracy theory, or do you buy into a more alternative way of looking at things? Okay, um, 
I look at it in terms of the effect, first of all. Um, the effect was two years of turning America into a country of fear and the government taking unprecedented controls, the, the government getting unprecedented surveillance on its own citizens. Actually, that stuff really, really started to take a foothold on, in, in the Clinton administration. You know, people thought of Bill Clinton as like this, you know, liberal, and no, he really wasn't. Um, it, actually, surveillance had never been expanded on the way it had been under Clinton. And then when 9-11 happened, you know, the Patriot Act and you know other kinds of legislation that passed that were even scarier than the Patriot Act um, passed. Whatever was left of America's privacy, which wasn't a hell of a lot by 2000, uh, whatever was left of America's privacy was gone. And you know the effect was it was used to justify the government attacking Afghanistan and than Iraq, completely based on lies. Now, there's the issue of the buildings coming down. I think anybody who's, you know, dabbled in physics <laughs> knows that those buildings were brought down by uh, charges. They, the, those buildings did not collapse because an airplane hit them. Um does that mean that there was a grand elaborate conspiracy or did, did that mean that somebody said, well, life gave us lemons, let's make some lemonade? I don't know. I don't think anybody can say they really do know. Uh, I'm content with saying I don't know, but the buildings were brought down with controlled detonations and somebody did that and took advantage of it and put the United States five to eight trillion dollars into debt. Uh, fighting wars to settle old scores. It was like, you know, watching a few scenes from The Godfather, <laughs> you know, where Pacino settles the scores with the heads of the five families. You know, it's kind of like that's what, you know, Dick Cheney and his puppets did and, uh, when 9-11 happened. But I don't, I don't know. Um, I think some of the, the conspiracies that I've read are just laughable. Uh, others are plausible, but there's no way to prove it. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that I got comfortable with as I got older is being able to be fine with saying, I don't know. Yeah, but, why like should we said, be expected to know these things? I mean, it's all speculation, frankly, with yeah. with any, whether it's the moon landing was faked or who shot JFK or... You know, there's so much that is beyond our scope of uh, knowing definitively. We can guess, we can speculate, and we can investigate, and we can try to build a case based on the information and the so-called facts that manage to come our way. But, hey, going back to uh, this business of Clinton, it's interesting the point that you made there, because from what I can gather, you're right on the mark there. Oklahoma City, that, that bombing incident, which there's a lot of oddities to that as well, too. Sure. People want to look into that with allegations of multiple bombers and, uh, you know, the wiring once again or crews out there on the ground setting things up in the days leading up to the incident and so forth. But uh, that that really, once again, you know, qui bono, who does it benefit? As with any major crime, uh, it's one of the, as an investigator, it's the first thing you have to be asking yourself, not the, not the last. So, uh, uh, and 
I'm not saying I'm not saying it to you, of course. I'm just you know speaking more, I guess, rhetorically, perhaps, just generally speaking. Uh, but yeah, there was uh, the Unpatriot Act was really, I guess, built on what Clinton already had in place, the anti-terrorism legislation that uh, his administration put together. So I'm not sure if you know more about that. And by the way, yeah, I do refer to and a few other crew members here as well aboard the the Robin Hood. Um, it's, it's the unpatriot act because, uh, you know, we got to be careful with this business of programming and, uh, the way that, uh, they just hand us these terms that we're expected then to parrot back non-critically, uh, you know, just very passively, uh, just being good little children, not really thinking too deeply and what it is that we're, we're saying or, or putting out there when really we should be reflecting on things a little more. Yeah. Language is important. Bless his heart, resting in peace. George Carlin was a gift to American culture in that regard. Oh, um, big time. Yeah, total <laughs> the, the counterculture hero. You betcha, sure. I think when we look at how that progressed, I, I um, yeah, I remember when it was you know, happening. You know, we're both close to the same age. Um, but a, a lot of the stuff that gets bandied about today, you know, in the, in the conspiracy circles was not new then. And a lot of what people are talking about that happened under Bush actually happened earlier under the, the Clinton administration mm-hmm. uh, with surveillance and uh, with a number of other things. World to, Trade Center, the first time they tried to bomb the, the in 1993, and that didn't come off too well. Do you know? Yeah, about that? yeah, the truck full of cow shit and rocket fuel. Yeah, the guy that they were trying to set up actually recorded these FBI agents handing him the materials or trying to you know frame him essentially for the whole thing. It's there on like I've heard these tapes myself. It's 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 incredible. I don't understand why these was any, did anything ever come of that? Was agents ever jailed, or, or was there any accountability? Uh, probably not. I'm just a guy. I've never served, and I've never been a government employee. You know, so I'm not anybody special. But I know of several instances in the mid '80s to the mid '90s where the FBI, uh, one person I know. You know, much like you say, the Unpatriot Act, he referred to the FBI as the Federal Bureau of Instigation because they were doing that with, um, you know, drug traffickers also or drug producers. You know, they were literally going into a place, setting up a circuit. You know, they were setting up people who were going to be distributing the drugs, people who were going to be selling the drugs, people who were going to be making the drugs. They were providing the materials to do it and then arresting everybody. Did you see the recent Tom Cruise movie uh, portraying uh, the role that Barry Seal played? Yeah, that was, that was yeah, yeah, made, yeah, made in America. Very, very well done movie, and it was yeah, it was just like that. You know, I'm not a uh, I'm not a Scientology fan at all, but I can appreciate. It's like this whole business of separating the art from the artist. He did a great job. He's a very he's a, you know he's a skilled actor. So you, once again, you got, for me, I give credit where credit is due. Well sure. done. Mel Gibson and, is a phenomenally talented guy. He's a, just a bigot. But he's a phenomenally talented guy, you know, on top of being an Oscar winning 
director and an amazing actor. The the woman that he was screaming into her cell phone, oh, shouting oh, racist stuff. He co-wrote ooh. a Grammy-winning hits for her. Oh, that was geez. something he did on the side to get laid. Jeez. You know, he was brilliant. He's brilliantly talented. He's just a bigot. <laughs> oh my God! You know, I mean, jeez, that was pretty <laughs> awful stuff. Yeah. So we've all got our moments, but uh, whoo. Really, Mad, Mad Max indeed, uh, Mad Mel. Uh, I'm just looking at the clock here. I'm thinking maybe 20 minutes tops, maybe 25. We'll see how things uh, play out here. But just a couple of quick notes that I've put together here over the course of our conversation to this point. One, to maybe go back and take a look. You're talking earlier about the electrical revolution. Uh, I'm not sure if you know much about it, but Nikola Tesla was a name that came to mind that we didn't have address that at all, uh, hear much from your end of things and his relationship with Edison, of course, the so-called yeah. currency wars, I think is what they were known as. Uh, Actually, then, a good film was made about it. It's fairly accurate historically, too. David Bowie? No, it was uh, more recent, last few years. I caught it on cable. I forget the name of the movie. But Jeez. yeah, there was a film made about mm. uh, that period of um, where Tesla was an employee of Edison's and then things worked out to where he became a competitor. From what I saw, it was fairly accurate historically. It didn't overstep itself. Well, a Tesla really got played, apparently, and Edison, you know, the way that he's lionized in all these history books and science books and so forth, yet we hear so little, if in fact anything, of Tesla. And my question is, why is he hidden from history? It's like he's been completely written out of history. He was there, and he played a big role, but it's like there's certain powers out there, forces for whatever reason, that would rather we just forget all about the guy. Oh, yeah, uh, and that gets into a whole lot of the older generation conspiracy stuff, which, um, I, I mean, I think it's fascinating, uh, however much of it is true, but, um, like, I'm sure you've heard of the story of the Philadelphia Experiment. Sure, yeah. For the people who are listening who've never heard of it, in a nutshell, in the early days of World War II, the biggest issue with ships and submarines was radar. In the 50s and 60s, we had the space race. In the early days of World War II, there was a race to find a way around being discovered by radar. And so Nikola Tesla developed or allegedly developed a technology to where um, they could set up a field around you know, whether it was a, a ship or, you know, some body, a field could be set up around this body and that it could f slightly phase out of the steady flow of our current reality. And when they did this Philadelphia experiment with this ship, you had uh, sailors who were drifting into bulkheads, falling halfway through the deck and rematerializing in the deck, people going mad. It was quite an amazing thing. Some of the work that Tesla was doing, you know, 30, 40 years before that was groundbreaking. You know, some people allege that um, the great earthquake uh, near the turn of the century in Siberia was actually uh, Tesla's uh, free energy device going awry and blowing up to the tune of several kilotons. That's right. So 
A lot of what Tesla was looking at, he wasn't just trying to look behind the veil of modern science. He was trying to rip down the curtain entirely. And uh, what he was doing a hundred years ago was so far ahead of his time, there probably weren't five people on the planet who understood what the hell he, that he was talking about. Even Einstein, when people say, you know, somebody allegedly asked Einstein, you know, what's it like being the smartest man in the world? And Einstein's response was, I don't know, ask Nikola Tesla. <laughs> um, That's right. Marconi was another uh, rival of Tesla's, of course, too, a uh, supporter of uh, fascist uh, Italy, Mussolini's El Duce regime. Uh, so that's uh, an interesting individual, someone people might want to look into uh, and investigate a little more. Real kind of Dr. Strangelove type character <laughs> from what I can gather. Although it's interesting, too, they tried to portray Tesla in this that similar sort of light there's an old and you can find on youtube as well uh animation superman animation which has uh tesla's the evil scientist out to uh, you know destroy humanity and uh wreak all sorts of uh terrible things upon the planet which i think really was quite you know he really it was quite the opposite state of affairs of course is the agenda that he was trying to, uh, I mean, he wanted free energy for everybody, from what I understand. And it was, uh, why was I going to say, uh, J.P. Morgan and company, you know, just a lot of America's fascist uh, interests, essentially corporate magnets, robber barons and the like, that why do you want to give it away for free when we can sell it and be uh, be making money from the whole business? So Sorry uh, to interrupt. The name yeah. of that uh, movie from last year mm -hmm. was, it's called The Current War. With uh, Edison and Tesla, do you know who Tesla. starred as the as the two the two rival scientists? Any uh, Benedict Cumberbatch played Edison, and a guy named Nicholas Holt played Nikola Tesla. Okay, so that the first name Cumberbatch, he's he's uh, portrayed Sherlock. He was Sherlock Holmes in a yeah, and TV yeah, or? Sherlock Holmes, Doctor Strange, uh, among many other things. Uh, he was also in that horrible J.J. Abrams remake of Rathacon. Um, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I never even heard of that one. The Tunguska event, as exactly what you're talking about there, there has been some speculation that Tesla, because of his, his experimentation, just had triggered something because it was at that same time, as you say, halfway around the world that he was testing a lot of, uh, high powered, uh, energy uh, technologies and, and so forth that, uh, it might have triggered the wrong sort of, thing i'm not sure if you want to take that and run with it for a moment or two but uh, just in brief then uh, how much of a well yeah made it clear from the get-go here you're something of a news junkie what of a pop culture aficionado <laughs> yeah um i also taught a media class for a number of years um yeah it's um it's something I've been, you know, very interested in. I'm of that generation where um, the X Files came out when I was in my, you know, early to mid twenties, and so a lot of us got into that. But even before that, I'd already started to get into uh, alternate perspectives on things because I had a very unique upbringing. I was raised, I was born Catholic and baptized, but my parents. Uh, were both Catholic, and they realized that they both really had some issues, some really serious issues. And most of those issues came from their growing up 
you know, in a system of Catholicism, and they didn't want to, you know, do that to me. I'm not saying that it was right or wrong. I'm saying that was their their justification. So uh, my mom went religion shopping, and I was raised a Reformed Jew. And so I, you know, most of my family was Catholic. We had some Lutherans. I was raised Jewish, and so I had a background that was very uh, unique. And by the time I was in high school, I was realizing that both the Jewish system of things and the Christian system of things, they weren't really answering all my questions for me. And so I was looking at what else was possible. Now, around that same time, I was also, you know, this was before the Internet. And so it isn't like we had 24-7 access to all the information in the world back in those days. But I was finding slow but sure, so everything moved slower back then, that a lot of what we were being told in history books was simply wrong. And not a little bit wrong, like absolutely wrong. Heavily politicized. And, no, that in science, there's not well, the two. Well, sure, not just the, but not just the politicization of it. Even the the basic facts were just wrong. The best example that I when when I have this conversation with people today who you know, and I want to actually like get them thinking about it, and not just go, oh, he's one of those people, and walk on. If you go to Anthropology 101 class, whether you're in South Korea, the United States, Germany, wherever, you're going to learn that humans domesticated the horse about 8,000 BC. You're going to learn that humans invented the bow and arrow about 8,000 BC. And there's paintings in caves in France and in India that have been discovered that have been carbon dated to conservatively 50,000 BC that show people on horseback hunting with bows and arrows. Clearly what we're being told in Anthropology 101 is wrong, but they still keep teaching it. And so, you know, I had made the decision before, you know, it became trendy into the whole conspiracy thing. You know, I just looked at it. I was like, well, if there's this information that's clearly wrong, there has to be information that is therefore correct. And so, it would be wise to look in other sources for the information. And at that time, I also started researching and developing myself, you know, with um, the spiritual disciplines, martial arts, meditation, blah, blah, blah. And um, I got less attached to the need to be right. I, I was lucky. I got comfortable saying the words, I don't know, at a younger age than most people do. And so I didn't really feel the need as, you know, as much to defend a position. You know, it was like I was perfectly fine. Like when you asked me about 9-11, it was like, well, yeah, because anybody with a, who's dabbled in physics would know that those buildings were brought down by explosives. Beyond that, I don't know. Nobody can really say they know. Um, with a lot of this conspiracy stuff, you know, that, that relates to history specifically, um, no, it's really hard to verify the actual origins of humanity. Um, and so I started looking at sources from folklore, which is, in a, you know, for a lot of people, especially scholars, an unusual place to go looking for it. But, you know, for, you know, I remembered hearing about the Hopi talking about this being the fourth civilization of humans and the third with flight. And that really piqued my interest. And then, you know, there's traditions, you know, the Aborigines in Australia. The, the ancient Egyptians, and there were actually more than one group of ancient Egyptians. You know, um, there's there's a lot of stuff out there, but 
ultimately, we're all, every one of us is going to have to do our own homework, and we're going to have to get cool with the world we live in in our own way. You know, when it comes to history, and when it comes to religion, and it comes to all that stuff. Anyway, that's that's how I got into it. Was it was more not just about wanting to be right, but it was it was more about self discovery. Probably the best approach to take as well too. I think we're quite similar in that sense because I don't see debate and discussion has its place, but for me, I see no need to ever become too overtly uh, hostile or heated. It just doesn't make any sense. Sometimes I become quite impassioned, which hmm. which people might mistake as some sort of aggressive um, some uh, symptom or the like, but no, uh, because of my Buddhist influence over the past quarter century, and similarly to yourself with meditation, just, uh, you know, which to me is breathing and being in the moment, really trying to just be in the zone. As you say, like the egolessness and the, the detachment is a really, is a big thing, of course. So I don't know. I, I learned to laugh about a lot of things now, like, that maybe in the past I didn't and not be so uptight and not to worry so much. So uh, there, there's a lot, of course, that we could we could go on about as far as, you know, spirituality and insight and various you know influences are concerned. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just talking as you were, these cave drawings, that's fascinating. The past 50,000 years, there's been these depictions that have been dated back, as you say, uh, depicting horseback riders with, I'm not sure if they're equipped with bows and arrows. I'd like to know where that is, where these can be found, but also the names Michael Cremo and Graham Hancock. Have you heard of those two individuals? or Yeah, I've, I've got three or four Graham Hancock's books on my shelf here. Um, the other guy, what, what was the other name? Michael Cremo. Not familiar with him. Go on to YouTube, and you might be quite interested in just checking out some of the interviews that he's done. A lot of uh, research and inquiry into the area of, uh, here's a big word now, an- anachronistic, things that are out of place in history that don't make mm. sense. Ah, I, know, I know what you're talking about, like finding human shoe footprints inside of dinosaur footprints, things like that. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> explain this one, you know, kind of deal for sure. Yeah. We're a bit older, so we remember when it was really cool every year when the new Guinness Book of World Records came out and in the 70s and the Book of Lists was a thing. Mm-hmm, Everybody mm-hmm. had it on their yeah. living room, you know, coffee yeah. table. You bet. You know, back in those days. And I remember that in the Book of Lists, you know, every year they would come out with a new one and it had more of this really out there but completely verifiable information. That was just something that was really cool to read about. And I remember reading about all that stuff in the 70s when I was a little boy, you know, before people put it together and, you know, built a thing around it. You know, people found this odd stuff like the the hammer that's supposedly, you know, like whatever it is, 100 million years old or something like that, that was found in strata that was 100 million years old. They found a hammer in it, you know, wood that was completely petrified and... They found that a hundred years ago, so I remember reading about that in the book of lists. It's interesting too, as journalists, which I think we both have a bit of experience in that area, if not hopefully an appreciation and respect for the field of journalism. But as I often like to say, hashtag fact check, because really our reputation does 
ride on these things. When we, as I was talking with the wife about tonight, we put these definitive statements out there in the affirmative sense, we got to be careful because, you know, and, and be ready to accept the fact we might be wrong. So, yeah. you know, really kind of watching the way that we parse our terms, you know, how we kind of frame statements and so forth and, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe back off from the position that we're taking. Or as you say, you don't know. So what can you do, frankly? That's maybe the best best approach to take in a lot of cases but uh we got to wind things down here and uh wrap our conversation up so just uh steer things back into uh, skullport harbor you know it's interesting what you had mentioned or referenced earlier uh the craft i was the media what came to mind was spy craft which to me just really other than outside the realm of uh the corporate world makes very little sense because i mean uh some people have even accused me of being a spy but i would just kind of look at them and laugh of course the biggest spy that there is out there is google just if you want to get your information, go, <laughs> yeah. don't ask me go to google uh and who would i be spying for anyways what's the point like yo i'm reporting on these little kindergarten kids <laughs> every week back to the you know canadian government i don't think so but uh, you know masonry as well too let's not forget referred to as the craft uh in a lot of uh many many circles also this business of practice and it's interesting because in my list of things as you were referring to just a few moments ago I'm not sure what kind of a world record this is necessarily, but medical practice, legal practice, and spiritual practice. It's interesting, too, to think about this, because why should we put all of our faith and give all of our money over to people such as uh, these you know, fields of medicine and, and law where they're just practicing all the time? Shouldn't we be paying them when they finally manage to get it right? It's like they finally achieved or accomplished something. You know, rather than just uh, claiming that, oh, well, all we're doing right now is practicing. So uh, I'll keep it brief because I know we're wrapping up. But, um, yeah, Benjamin Franklin looked at the United States, the, ex the great experiment, as an egg. It was something that wasn't ever necessarily meant to be perfected. It was just meant to be nurtured and grow. Uh, the U.S. legal system, I don't think, was ever meant to be perfected. I think it was meant to develop and grow. At, at that time, 240, 250 years ago, that was revolutionary, amazing. Nobody would have, nobody else would have even thought of such a thing. It was brilliant. But in, in today's world, it's refreshing that law can still grow and develop and evolve as the society it reflects grows and develops and evolves. Otherwise, it, it would be fixed and more apt to be abused than it already is which is a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we need to have laws constantly in flux and changing, just as with history. That's one of the things. People talk about historical revisionism. Well, you better be taking another look at what has been officially stated in these books, because in a lot of cases, we really just don't know, and that it's one person's opinion over the next. And uh, it is heavily politicized, both that and science, the way that science, it seems, so often is used <laughs> for political purposes. And Man-made climate change is one of the classic examples. Vaccines is another, of course, and you can the list goes on. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting what you say about Franklin. Do you know about his association and membership in the Hellfire Club? 
I know that he was a Freemason. I, the, no. What, what exactly? Which one is the Hellfire Club? They, I get confused sometimes. It's been a, a while since I've like been heavy into it all. Which okay. one is the- Well, I guess a predecessor of the, in some ways, the what we find and hear about today, uh, referred to as the Bohemian Club. But uh, just to cut it short, did you hear it reported just a few years ago how one of the houses that he had called his home for a number of years over in England had uh, been renovated and uh, excavated uh, underneath in the basement area. They found quite a few human uh, skeletons, basically, was what was discovered. Mm. Interestingly enough, and there's some people have speculated that it could be a number of things ranging anywhere from medical practice once again we're just kind of experimenting more or less doing our best to figure things out here to the point all the way of uh flat out human sacrifice so the name's not quite coming to me oh rabelais there we go there's and <laughs> anything more than that what i could say or how i could elaborate in the fashion uh you know you can just pretty much forget about it but he was actually a, a, a occult sort of uh i'm not sure occultist or Practitioner, I suppose, maybe even some would say a practitioner of uh, ritual magic uh, or what have you, but a name to definitely take note of, and in fact, seen as in some ways a predecessor to the likes of Aleister Crowley and so forth. But yeah, yeah, he was he influenced the Hellfire Club, I guess, in a big way. Rabelais. Now we're bringing it all back into a circle. The you know, those periods in human history where uh, you had developments of personal growth the mid to late 1700s that was when we had a philosophical development i think that was the time of rousseau you had uh, kant you had people really changing from church centered world view to you know ideas like the contract with nature and you know during that time we also had the development of the seed of the industrial revolution, you know, replaceable parts. That was something that had never been done before, at least not in the West. Certainly not on a massive scale. All of that, you know, happening while the United States great experiment was happening. Just another personal growth movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ben Franklin was definitely one of the more blasted out ones. He also allegedly had more than a hundred illegitimate children. <laughs> Jeez, I hope uh, it wasn't. Uh a few of them that were found down there in the basement area of this house that he said to have lived in. Then again, it's kind of hard, even if you, you know, to pin anything on the guy other than just guilt by association, that doesn't fly, does it? I mean, it's maybe, maybe there's something to be said for that, but you can't prove definitively one way or the other. It just doesn't look good is I guess one way of seeing things. So uh, just in closing, and I know we were going to get into the Russian revolution, the whole business, the way that, as we had talked about on Facebook, I guess just earlier this past week, there was a really central prominent role of various Jewish individuals, among the likes, of course, all the top leaders, Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, and Marx, of course. I mean, there's the uh, the ideological godfather, really, hmm. of the whole. Uh, he was the leading figure and inspiration to the whole thing, so... In 30 seconds, or maybe 45 seconds or less, um, the history of, of Russia during the 17th, 18th, and 19th century 
the Jewish communities were largely used as a social outlet, a, uh, an institutional scapegoat for whatever ills of the society, you know, of the time. And every so often, a group of Cossacks or a group of soldiers would um, get together a discontented community. They would get onto horseback and they would go into a Jewish village and do something called a pogrom. There you go. What and does they that would, mean in English? I, I've heard the term program. What does it mean exactly? I don't know the literal translation, but essentially yeah. it's it's where they go in, they burn down all the buildings, rape the women, kill a lot of the people, and there's no social accountability for the crime. Because they're just Jews. I mean, hey, yeah, the they were, not? yeah, and and that was that was their function in the society of the czars. That was their function, and this went on for hundreds of years. So it's it's really not surprising to me that um, a lot of the leaders of you know, what became the Bolshevik Revolution came out of that community because they were perhaps the most shit on in the, in that society. And even after the so-called egalitarian movement of the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, the Jews were still shit on in the society. And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, you know, left the Soviet Union to go to Israel as soon as they could. Because the Soviets were not big on letting their citizens leave, but they were more amenable to getting rid of Jews because they were considered to be a social poison. So yeah, that's where a lot of that comes from, is that institutionally, for hundreds of years before the Bolshevik Revolution, the Jews were the scapegoat. And the distinction between white and red Russians, in a nutshell, do you, you clear on that? No. Okay. You mentioned Hopi uh, traditions and so forth. Immediately, I'm thinking swastikas, of course, because that's one of the things that goes along with that whole tradition and culture. A lot of people, you know, thinking that, oh, well, that's all you know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. But no, it goes, you can find it in many other places around the world throughout history. Ancient India, of course, as well as the Hopi people and the Rainbow Warrior prophecy hmm. as well. If once again, just kind of bullet point uh, form fashion, and then and in closing, just in addition to that, the war on consciousness here in Korea. There never has been a counterculture movement. They shut that down real fast. Well, yeah, there. that was one of the. Uh, I told you I taught a media class here for about five, six years, and that was often the most um, difficult aspect of it because in Western art and thought, most of the biggest developments artistically, philosophically, and otherwise came from counterculture movements. Even, you know, like I, I remember the way I find I finally found a way to, to make the point without using the word counterculture. I found a movie that kind of comically depicted beatniks from the movie was called uh, Funny Face. It was an Audrey Hepburn movie. And there's a scene in a beatnik bar Prior to that, you know, the only people who dressed that way were beatniks. My students were looking at the people in the beatnik bar, and all of my students were dressed just like them. And it was like, you see, even your fashion today comes from counterculture. And it blew their mind because they were watching this movie that was 60, 70 years old, and it was irrefutable. Obviously, it did come from that. <laughs> and they didn't really know how to process it. But yeah, counterculture going back to the days of early Joseon was never tolerated. And before that, I'm just ignorant. I don't know. It could be much. It could go into Goryeo or Shilla, Unified Shilla. I don't know. But I know for sure um, during the Joseon era, most of it, dissent was not tolerated. 
Well, and that's why I guess we find throughout history in Korea so many of the the Buddhist monks having to flee to the hills, take and find refuge in the mountains. That's my impression, at least. But just going back to what you're talking about, this funny face movie with Audrey Hepburn, she's a beloved figure here, especially, I think, among many women who... As a fashion icon. Yeah. As a fashion icon, most people don't know that she spoke six or seven languages, that she she was a brilliant woman. But nobody knows that. They just know that she looked cute and black. Yeah. She was a very beautiful, uh, striking physical appearance. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been more of a Maryland woman, you know, more into Maryland than uh, Audrey. But yeah, yeah. Oh, don't uh, get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the with this business of the 50th anniversary now, the RFK assassination, that whole tie-in with the Kennedy brothers. Don't get me started. Yeah. So, but uh, hey, it's been a real uh, pleasure. It's uh, we didn't get a chance really to go into too much in the war and consciousness regarding Korea. But as you may or may not be aware, uh, 1976, uh, Park Chung Hee picked up the phone. I guess he got a call from Washington, and I'm not sure if he's actual present at the time. And this is where things get a little murky. Or one of his uh, government officials and high-ranking uh, representatives. But uh, was it the Carter administration, Gerald Ford? Uh, 76 would have been Ford still. Carter didn't come into power till 77? Right. Okay, so... The election was in 76. Goddamn Ford, I tell you. Speaking of, uh, he was another... They're all, most of the presidents, you know, the free, another Freemason, LBJ. The Bushes, both Skull and Bones, which is, yeah. that's a pretty like a quasi-type Masonic organization. The list just goes... Yeah, Jimmy oh, no. Carter was out of most of those loops, though he was a member of the Trilateral Commission, right. if you're into that. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so this this war on consciousness, 1976, Pak Chung, he picks up the phone and there's a deal struck, quid pro quo, I guess. That's where weed became illegal in Korea. They shut it down, that call right from Washington, where now, ironically... It's completely fine, you know, the the kind of uh, lid on the pressure cooker has been lifted, and uh, it's a lot more open and uh, a free approach to things, so that's really, I find, quite ironic, whereas here, people kept completely in the dark and ignorant while they're dumbing their senses and consciousness down, just drowning, as I, as I prefer to put it, frankly, uh, in this sea of um, alcohol and pharmaceuticals. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, it's just, uh, and, and Soju too, let's not forget, which I compare to George Orwell's Victory Gin, <laughs> 1984, living in our Victory Mansions, drinking our, our Victory Gin. So that's a real issue, and exactly along the lines of what you hit on there as far as their, uh, sensibilities are concerned regarding art and various ascetics and well, so but, forth. Yeah, it's, it's, um, something that, bottom line, which, you know, was, made it more challenging for me was that and it's not just korea it's most of east asia with the exception of japan most of east asia is not media-centered cultures they have a lot of media they have successful media but it's disposable like when i came here in 2001 there was a band called janushin they were everywhere they were everywhere every time you walked into a grocery store a hair salon and anything you would hear janushin they had their own line of clothing they were on almost every tv program at some point during the day they were everywhere absolutely pervasive 
10 years later, people are like, who's Janushin? You know, there's absolutely no cultural memory for media. It's like, it's really cool. It's ours. We love it. But there's no memory of it, and it fills a specific role. Are you familiar with the book by Neil Postman, Abusing Ourselves to Death? No. Okay, well, we could talk to you about that later. I'll send you a link. That was a, a big uh, deal back in the day. I studied in university, media studies and the like. So, uh, as you say, very disposable uh, uh, Japanese reality TV shows seem to be really the rage. And uh, But uh, as, you, as you kind of, I think, are, the point you're trying to drive home here, one of the points at least, is that uh, certain things with trends and the like, uh, that some things are hot for, I mean, you got to strike while the, while the iron is hot, I suppose, because your star can only last and, and, and rise and shine for so long. And then, uh, as with all things, it just, it subsides, sinks and, uh, disappears, goes away. So. On that note, I think we've run the gamut. The DPRK, it's going to be interesting to see what comes of things. This uh, dialogue that's been struck and now openly established for the whole world to see, at least on some level, between the Trump administration and uh, DPRK. Hopefully, we'll see more on the pot tourism front. This business of uh, Rodman with his shuttle diplomacy, as it were, the art of the deal, sponsored by Podcoin, that... Uh, there's a reason for this, folks, and uh, if you look a little bit outside of the official mainstream narrative, uh, you might see what's actually going on a little more behind the scenes. Uh, I, once again, was just really fortunate to pick up on the fact, courtesy of the Joe Rogan experience, Polly Shore had been talking about how off the record, Kim Jong-un actually uh, secretly admired Trump and uh, was hoping to perhaps maybe strike up a bit of a relationship at some point. It seems that that's where we're at the present moment. Who knows what uh, potentially good things might come out of where it is that we find ourselves at the present moment. Mr. Wadsworth, it's been a great time. Episode 27, July of 2016, now episode and show number 112. Uh, do you have any future, you've got activities here just this very weekend. In fact, right at the time we're planning on streaming the show out here this Saturday, you should, you're going to find yourself engaged in a uh, pretty high profile shaman um, and, and shamanist conference of sorts. Can you just once again fill our listeners in what the details are and perhaps even maybe they is it open to the public? Would they yeah, be able to? Um, yeah, it's going to be at uh the Museum of Shamanism. The location is called Gumsung Dang. It's um, in Umpyanggu. It's uh, not very far from, I think, Bonghwasan Station. There's two subway stations that are fairly close to it, though both of them you would need to take a bus to the to the location. But yeah, it's going to go from about 9 a.m. to roughly 5 p.m. Uh, there's going to be a shaman ritual at the museum, and of course you can see the the sites of the museum itself. It's the best collection, the most comprehensive collection of Korean shamanic uh, materials in the country. So in that regard, it's, it's a great opportunity because you can see the material culture and the intangible culture together. 
Donations are always welcome, but as far as I understand, it's free. And uh, it'll be a great opportunity to not only see the stuff and see the material, you'll also be able to see different people from that world who are just going there as you or I would go there, just as people, just as folks. Um, so it'll be it'll be a great time. And like I said, it's going to be going from about 9 in the morning to about 5 p.m. Yeah, so it should be a good time. Hopefully the weather will uh, work out, so it'll be a nice day. Well, it's an outdoor event as well, isn't it? Yeah, the museum is a very unconventional museum. Like I said, it was uh, it was originally a turn-of-the-century uh, shamanic compound, basically Hanok style. And uh, long and short of it, about 12 years ago, 9 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, it had been lost to time. And up in that area, uh, I think it's Bongwasan, there was um, uh, some old buildings were being gutted and torn down. And they were building apartment high-rises because Seoul needs much more of that, apparently. And the old shaman compound, which had fallen into disrepair of 100 years of not being cared for, Ironically, Dr. Young, who runs the Museum of Shamanism, it was brought to his attention, and he, and he um, negotiated and fought with the government, discussed, debated, and got it preserved and actually restored in, a, in an original way. So it, it, you know, it very much was an authentic turn-of-the-century shamanic shrine, which there's not much of in the country. And jump ahead 10 years or so, he was offered to use that as his museum. So now the museum is largely outdoor. It's just like, think of a Hanok-style compound of like three or four buildings being used as museum display. It's very unique, very, really pretty. Uh, I think it's better to go to during the spring, summer, or fall than it is in the winter because it is outdoors. But um, yeah, it's it's really, uh, really amazing. I've never seen another museum like it in South Korea. I'm not sure if they had a hand in things, but of course, during the time of occupation, the Japanese were notorious for decimating and eradicating all sorts of uh, traditional Korean sites and, uh, you know, cultural artifacts and, and the like. So perhaps... Uh, Maybe this was one of them where they made some effort in that direction. Or- uh, no, I, I, there were three shrines. There's a whole story behind it. Um, there was a, a Prince Gumsung long time ago. He was a honorable figure, Prince Gumsung. Ended up dying in defense of an honorable king who... Anyway, it's this whole story with it. There were three shrines where this Prince Gumsung was a spirit that was revered and worshipped by certain shamans. And there were three shrines in Seoul. Two of them are gone. This one in um, Unpyeonggu, Gumsungdang, uh, it's the last of the three. So the other two might have been destroyed during the occupation or just lost to time. Or it's also very possible a lot of that stuff wasn't destroyed by the Japanese occupation. It was um, destroyed in the name of modernization during the dictatorship era. Not pointing fingers at anybody or anything, but it's what happened. And so um, I don't know, with those two other uh, shrines, who damaged them or destroyed them or bulldozed them, but they were lost to time. It's a a miracle that one of them survived, and it almost didn't. It was discovered by somebody who called somebody who was in a position where they could fight for it. If that phone call had never been made, 
they would have never been saved, and so there wouldn't be a museum of shamanism there today. So it's pretty cool. Don't think that we don't have the ability to affect change people, even if only in the slightest manner. Uh, one drop of water upon the next is what forms the largest seas imaginable. So on that note, Aaron, you've been a great sport here, of course, and it's been a really insightful exchange and conversation i'm really happy to have had the chance to reconnect much appreciated no is there any urls you yourself have available you'd like to share with the listeners or even with the this the, the museum project uh, just now would be the time to do that of course well right now with urls no i don't except for a facebook page i don't have much of a digital footprint um but you know with events coming up this uh event this coming saturday is a biggie but um, beyond that, generally, uh, I don't get involved with much because I do a summer camp in uh, Gangwondo. That's where I was when we did our first interview almost two years ago. Um, I was actually at the camp. It was uh, my, my day off. That's right. Exactly uh, as you put it. I think you might even have been at the time. My fiancé with... at the time was in the other room. Like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's right. I think you sprained your ankle or you had some health issues you were sort of struggling with as well. Yeah, right after that, I ended up having uh, four knee surgeries, four procedures done arthroscopically right after that camp. Yeah. On that note, once again, thank you very much. We, unfortunately, this week looks like we'll not have an after show, the Rogues Gallery end of things. Be sure, folks, to check us out, Pirate Radio Podcasts, on Facebook, Twitter, Minds.com. Let's not forget about that. Hopefully, Aaron will manage to get his act together here at some point. I know we've talked about it in the past. Put together a channel over there. We can connect and help to show him the ropes. Uh, Patreon forward slash WPRPN. We accept PayPal donations as well as just straight up. Uh, tips people want to contribute to the community pot let's not forget under the robin hood mandate half of all contributions uh, monies and the like goes directly back to charity so it is in large part for a good cause we're just trying to get our operating expenses covered here at the present moment doing our best to achieve that goal hoping that we can manage to accomplish that before the year is out that about does it though folks once again thanks for sailing along with us here this week hopefully you enjoyed the ride until we meet again out in the high digital seas on behalf of captain long john sinclair and all the rest of the crew of the robin hood i'm your host as always the ship's chief communications officer jaffe Ryder. Now, there we be. Having carefully looked over each of our navigation panel instruments, checking every level, switch, dial, cable, knob, and pulley, by all accounts and indications, we indeed see it's time once again to drop anchor inside Mystic Bay and draw an end to another week of Pirate Radio Podcasts. Remember... If you're looking for a little more lively online action, keep in mind we've likely got yet another great free-flowing rogues gallery after show coming up for the next hour in either Skype, Google Hangouts, or Peer.in. Also, 
If you've in any way enjoyed or found yourself benefiting from the shows we've tirelessly produced over the past two years, you might want to drop by our Patreon tip jar page and lend a little support. Half of all network donations go directly to charity. Help to keep those numbers growing over on Patreon and we'll be able to extend even more of a generous pirate hand. Looking forward now to the balance of 2018, we're still not quite yet booked. So if you yourself have a new, novel, intriguing, or otherwise underreported idea, unique individual, or pressing item in mind, be sure to either drop us a line directly over on WPRPN.com or fire us a quick email via PirateOneRadio at gmail.com. We're always open to exploring fresh creative suggestions, intriguing guest ideas, cutting-edge discussion topics, and captivating themes. You can further embark on your own personal pirate journey by either liking, commenting on, subscribing to, or just following us via virtually any mainstream social media platform, including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Minds.com. So don't forget to become engaged until we meet again out on the high digital seas. I'm your host as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Tally ho.